Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought fight where we fight tooth and nail and sometimes tongue in cheek over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckets join me shortly on our topics this week, electing a mayor, debating the Electoral College, roast and toast and education pre-K to K-12 and beyond. And that's where we start with our newsmaker segment. Joining me is the superintendent of the Kansas City, Missouri School District, Dr. Mark Bedell. Dr. Bedell, welcome to Ruckus. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you for coming in. Well, thank you, Mr. Shannon, for having me here today. Uh, on Tuesday, Kansas City voters are going to vote on a three-eighths of a cent sales tax for pre-K education. This is something Mayor James has backed and wanted. You and other school administrators in Kansas City, Missouri have said you don't want this tax passed. And yet, I know you have also said pre-K education is valuable, something that you hope young children will have someday in Kansas City. So what's the basis for the opposition to the three-eighths of a cent tax? Well, I think there's far too many that I can probably share with the audience right now, but I'll talk about a few of them that I think are of extreme importance. One, uh, we're, <coughs> we're utilizing a sales tax. We talk about raising about $28 million a year. There's no guarantee that we'll hit that $28 million every year, right? And I think that's a major concern. I think the fact that it's an economic development sales tax. And anybody who knows uh, what's happened in the Kansas City Public School District around abatements and incentives and tax incremental financing, we probably lose or we don't see 31 to $35 million a year already. So we're going to take the last 3.8 cents, which in my opinion should be utilized to do some type of economic development east of Troost, where we have food deserts, where we don't have businesses operating to help enhance those communities. But we want to turn around and use that uh, to fund early childhood uh, education. And I think that's a problem. I think it ties our hands as respective superintendents. It doesn't give us an opportunity to work locally with our community to go after a levy, which we think would go a lot further, but also continually give us the autonomy that elected boards were hired, were selected to do. So let me ask you this. If the three-eighths of a cent sales tax is approved by voters on Tuesday, what do you do then? Do you turn down the money, refuse to implement no, the program? Absolutely not. I mean, if it, if it passes, I think the district will move forward just as any other school district with uh, continued, continuous expansion of early childhood. I think that the message that's out there right now is that districts haven't been doing anything. I authorized 1,100 tuition-free pre-K seats the first day I took this job. I also started one of the first regional early Head Start programs at one of my high school where we educate kids from birth until four. And so we've been very intentional around expanding early childhood, and it's a part of our strategic plan. Well, what ages are we talking about in pre-K? Well, and, and for us, our school district currently serves three- and four-year-olds, and we offer full-day services to those students who attend. The plan focuses only on four-year-olds. 
Uh, and what do you teach three and four year olds? I mean, I think it's at that phase you're beginning to introduce them to letter sounds, making sure that they can count from one to ten, understanding shapes, understanding. It, it colors. prepares them for the later education. The fundamental building blocks that give them a strong foundation as they then get ready to enter into kindergarten. Uh, a few weeks ago, you were scheduled to be on the program. You had to cancel at the last minute. Then, the big news was the district is on the way to full accreditation. Can you refresh our memory about that? Yeah, absolutely. We have worked extremely hard, and I love to give credit where credit is due. In our press conference, I credited three former superintendents for tough decisions that they had to make that put us in a position to where we were much more stable financially. Uh, it allowed for us to come in with my team working with this current board to really focus on teaching and learning, to just do the fundamental 101 things, rewriting curriculum, getting it vetted by the Council for Great City Schools, giving our people the right kind of professional development, making sure that our principals have the resources that they need to be great instructional leaders. All of those things, putting an instructional framework in place, all of those things have contributed to our school district making the kind of progress that we're making. Well, when can patrons expect the district to be fully accredited? I mean, my intention is to get there by the end of this year. We're getting, we're getting ready to take our next round of assessments. And, um, you know, we think that we put a formula in place that will allow for us to continue to make the growth. But I do want our community to know that uh, just getting accreditation, I mean, it's a great thing to get, but we... But, we, but that's what patrons should expect of a school district, is it not? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that's, that's like right. a minimum it's a, it's expectation. A yeah. It's a baseline, right? We, we have a long ways to go, and I think um, we will celebrate, but our ultimate goal is that we want our kids competing at or above state average on proficient and advanced performance. We want them to compete at the national level on NAEP and ACT and AP and IB and... We're not going to stop until we get there, but it is about expectations. All of these kids can achieve, and I know some of our kids show up with variables that work against them, but they can be successful. When you get there, come back and talk to us about it, all sure right? Sure thing. Thank you so much. Pleasure to meet you. Thank Thanks you. for coming in. That is Kansas City, Missouri School Superintendent Dr. Mark Bedell. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus! Jason Grill is the founder of J. Grill Media and a senior advisor at Paris Communications. Dave Traubert is the president of the Kansas Policy Institute. Michelle Watley is the founder of the Grio Consulting Group. And Crosby Kemper III is the executive director of the Kansas City Library System and host of KCTT's, KCPT's, be helpful if I got the call letters correctly, Meet the Past and Centropolis programs. Thanks to all of you for coming in. Welcome to the program. Let us start by staying with the topic of education and discussing some of the issues raised in my discussion with Dr. Bedell. Kansas Citians will decide the fate of a 3.8 cent sales tax for pre-K education on April the 2nd. Bedell and other school officials are opposed for a variety of reasons. The Chamber of Commerce, among others, has offered support for the project, which will be on the ballot because of the backing of Mayor Sly James. During his eight years in office, James has usually gotten his way. Can he get one last victory with the pre-K tax? And we'll start with Michelle. If he does, it won't be without a fight. 
um, you've seen grassroots opposition, opposition from community leaders in a way that you haven't seen for other initiatives that the mayor has passed. However, the mayor has you know great approval ratings across the city, and he's been able to get a lot of things done. So if he is able to pass it, it's, it's going to be a battle. How do you explain this opposition? Kansas Cityans uh, should be accustomed to sales tax increases. Well, maybe we're too accustomed. Well, yeah, yeah and, and maybe that's part of it. And it's it's not only the tax increase. There are, as the superintendent mentioned, a number of issues with oversight, where the money goes, who oversees the money. And I think that uh, the general public and, in, in some ways, a lot of uh, community organizations that have a hand in education or, or work with uh, our community have a problem The, with the school officials won't be able to run the program the way they want to run it. Well, they don't even have It'll you be know, run by a board and by the mayor. In which they, 15 school districts only have one, you know, one seat, right? And so when you don't have support from 15 different school districts, I think to your average voter, that's problematic. Crosby, pick up on your point about sales tax Well, increases. number one, we have among the highest taxes in the United States in Kansas City, among the highest sales taxes, <coughs> sales taxes are regressive. They affect the poor, particularly the working poor, much more than anyone else. So it's a terrible way to do this. But there's also a problem with the way we're going to spend the money. Uh, the, the, the mayor has no brief, the, the city council, the city itself, no brief for education, has never done education before. I, said, I was on this commission originally, and I said, look, we have an early uh, childhood program, Head Start. Let's find out how well we're doing with that. We've never done that. It's about a quarter to, to a third of the students that would be in this program, and we don't know how well we're already doing. Uh, on this. We do know one thing. We don't do teacher education well in Kansas City. UMKC, University of Central Missouri, et cetera, have historically not produced good teachers. And, and we're going to have a much larger teacher pipeline. And we know quality teachers are what, what are needed. We need to solve that problem before we spend money. Dave, do we see a lot of pre-K education in Kansas? There's a lot of push for it, Mike. And, and I'd say it's well intended. The problem is, I mean, it's not that there's not a benefit to pre-K education. But when you put those kids into a system that isn't really working, those benefits are pretty soon lost. We did an analysis when a few years ago when they were talking about all-day kindergarten in Kansas. And when we looked at the test scores and compared the districts that had all-day with those who didn't, in the third or fourth grade, there really wasn't any difference in the reading scores. Uh, Dr. Burdell, Grace, uh, Jason said that uh, it's likely the district will be fully accredited by year's end. What would that mean for the district and for Kansas City? I mean, they accomplished the baseline, right? The minimum that they need to accomplish. I think, I think a lot of this issue, it's going to be, I think, kind of close. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's going to come down to the mayor's popularity too, right? So if I had to guess right now, I would say it's probably not going to pass the pre-K initiative. But I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Are you surprised by the opposition? A little bit, but as a former state representative, I know that education systems in our, our state and our country don't change very fast. And I think that the charter schools have done pretty good things. The Kaufman schools have done pretty good things. And I'd like to see more innovation in the education system in our country and in our state uh, because I feel like the world's changing. And I feel like we haven't done anything to address kind of the entrepreneurial boom and just different ways that people look at their jobs these days. Dave, talk a bit more about what full accreditation actually means for a school district. Well, it depends uh, on where they set the bar. Uh, in Kansas, for example, it, it's set rather low. Um, there's, Kansas is moving away from accrediting school buildings and accrediting districts. Uh, and, and I asked the Board of Education, when was the last time someone lost accreditation? They can't remember. Now, we have some schools 
that uh, are, are have, have very, very low achievement. I mean, the average test score is way below grade level, and yet nothing happens. So it, it depends on where the line gets set to qualify for accreditation. Is this a major defeat for Mayor James if this loses on it, Tuesday? It's a pretty bad defeat going out. He made this his one attempt to, to, to do something for the east side, to do something for the poor and, 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 and minorities uh, in his uh, mayoralty, and I think it will lose. Uh, all the uh, mayoral candidates, with the exception of his chosen Joel, successor, Joel Joel Justice, Justice yeah. are opposed to it. And they would be the ones that have to carry it out if it were to right. pass. So, exactly. I mean, I think that's very telling that you've got a government and business supporting it, but you can't get educational leaders to back it. Um, and so, and I think Correct. the public see that. They see that also. All right. The future of pre-K education is not the only issue. Voters in Kansas City will decide next Tuesday. Two of the 11 candidates for mayor will be nominated to face off in the June general election. KCPT hosted a forum for mayoral candidates last week at the Plaza Library, broadcasting the hour-long event last Friday and Sunday. All of the candidates showed up, including some who did not meet the minimum criteria for taking part. One of those was Clay Chastain. I have an obligation to take care of my daughter who I have sole custody of. I can't leave Virginia. But I will if I get this job because her mother's coming down and she'll take care of her. Did you know that? Actually, I did not. Uh, <laughs> Crosby, you were at the library kind of hosting the event before Nick Haynes took over, yeah. and you've watched the mayor's race for several months. What are some of your thoughts as we go into the well, final well, few days? Well, my, my thoughts is that we've heard a lot of pablum from the candidates and very few very specific uh, uh, ways of dealing with our problems. We've heard almost nothing about the $700 million pension gap we've got. Uh, crime. Everybody talks about crime, but there's no real specific plan for computer-aided policing or real community policing. Um, taxes were the highest, one of the, one of the highest tax cities in the United States. And Quentin Lucas and Alicia Kennedy have talked a little bit about that, particularly in terms of uh, uh, sales taxes. But those the taxes and crime have not been uh, serious issues in this uh, in this campaign in terms of any specific. Uh, specifics at all. So I'm very disappointed in all the candidates. So uh, Mayor James endorsed Jolie Justice. That's right. Kansas City Star has endorsed Alicia Kennedy and Phil Glenn. Mm -hmm. What do you think of those endorsements? I thought that most people in the our realm of, of people that work in this sector were kind of surprised by those endorsements, but those two candidates have done well at the debates that I've watched and seen. Uh, you know, new candidates always do well. They have new ideas. And then uh, Alicia Kennedy is kind of... Um, She's kind of being more bold in these debates. She's actually putting out uh, opposition to some of the other city councilpersons. She's kind of separating herself from the rest of the city council. But at the end of the day, I still think the front runners are Jolie Justice and Steve Miller. All right, and Steve Miller got the endorsement of Forward Kansas City, which is a North Kansas City group. You're a young woman in Kansas City. Uh, Michelle, do you find a lot of interest in this election among your friends? I, it's almost by, like on opposite ends. I either have friends that are highly engaged and, and ready to you know, vote or are paying attention to what's going on, and then I have friends and people in my circle who don't even know there's an election. Um, mm -hmm. And that's indicative of most of Kansas City at this point. You've got over 40% of voters who are undecided, and we are within the week of voting. So um, I think the candidates... Uh, are maybe just playing it safe and not w doing the work to really differentiate themselves and, and put their races out there. You're just only starting to see real traction. And 
I think, yeah, that's, that's kind of disappointing. After coming off the heels of 18, where we were highly engaged, I thought that would maybe trickle down to the local level. Well, but doesn't the real battle not. begin when you've got two finalists? Yeah. I think it does. But I think in this case, when you have so many candidates and the threshold to, to be in the top two is so low, you've got to do more work to make sure your, your base is out and that you put yourself out there. And I don't know that we've... And I would say that we minutes. have good candidates. I, I, yeah. I, I, I will get more into the case for debate, but I thought that was really well done. Um, and there were a lot of issues discussed. And well, well, they, very they all based. came out against potholes. I mean, that, that's <laughs> which may be the ma that may no. be the major issue. Well, and, and six of them didn't take any credit for the potholes, though they've you know been around while they were building. Uh, I, I really I disagree with Jason. I, I, I'm really disappointed in the lack of specificity. These candidates don't have programs to do anything about the real problem. But, but Crosby, once we get to two, they're going to have more time to talk about more issues, right? right? But, well, but, one one could hope. Yeah, well, one yeah, could you hope. Know, Dave, Kansas City, Missouri doesn't have a strong mayor form of government. It's a council manager form. Twelve members of the city council. Most of the administrative authority rests with the city manager. The mayor has some. Is it really that critical who is the mayor of Kansas City? You know, it should be. In, in theory, it should be, Mike. But in this case, I don't know that it really makes a tremendous amount of difference because they both, uh, regardless of whether it's time uh, or, or what the circumstance is, there's really not much difference between most of those candidates. I, I, I agree with Crosby. I think that uh, they're mostly all talking in generalities. It's about more government intervention and not doing anything to really deal with the underlying problems of, of high taxes and high crime. I think Jolie Justice and Steve Miller have raised the most right. amounts of money. Is that significant? Does I that think tell so. I anything? think that's why most people think that they're the two front runners. Uh, but again, like I, I would be shocked if Jolie Justice didn't make the final two. That's probably the only thing that would shock me. Uh, if, if somebody else made the second person who we, maybe we didn't expect, like Phil Glenn or... Uh, Kennedy or Lucas, that wouldn't shock me. Or one of the Scots, uh, Scott Taylor, Scott Wagner, that wouldn't shock me as much. But if Jolie is not in the final two, I would be kind of so shocked. So you're not easily shocked? I'm very shocked right. if that happens. Right. Uh, only then. Only then. Then and only then. In only five presidential elections has the winning candidate not received the majority of the popular vote. Two of the five in the 21st century and both winners <laughs> were Republicans. Victory in those five, as in all presidential elections, came through the constitutional method established by the founders, the Electoral College. Motivated mostly, I guess, by Donald Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton, some of the current Democratic presidential hopefuls are calling for abolition of the college. Proponents say the popular vote should prevail after all the majority rules, but others remind us that the U.S. has a federal system, shared sovereignty between the states and the national government, and the presidential contests are and should be 50 state elections. Abolishing the Electoral College would require a constitutional amendment. That seems unlikely before the 2020 elections. Nonetheless, should this be taken seriously? Should the Electoral College be dumped? And we start with Jason. I, I could see both sides of this argument, Mike. If you really take off your partisan glasses and think about it, I mean, I get the point that Democrats are making. You know, obviously, six of the last seven candidates for president for their party have won the popular vote. I also, and they also believe every vote should count in wherever you live. I also believe the point of the other side that says, hey, let's not disenfranchise small states. Let's not let's make sure rural votes count as well. My solution is is why are we not just making every state? If you have 10 electoral votes, why is that not proportional? If Trump gets 60 percent and Clinton got 40 percent, why is it just not six electoral votes to Trump, four to Clinton? Like I, I just 
That to me is the best solution. You, uh, you to said make. take off partisan glasses. So let me ask you this. If Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, would well, these Democratic presidential hopefuls be calling for a change uh, in probably the not. college? They probably no. would not. But again, Mike Barack Obama, Donald Trump was calling for an abolition of the Electoral College when it helped Barack Obama in 2008 or 2012, but, I believe. So, so, so again, you got to take off your partisan glasses and actually look at what's best for our country. Dave, either leave your partisan glasses on or take them off, whichever you prefer. What are your thoughts about well, abolishing the Electoral College? I don't think I can take my partisan glasses <laughs> off, Mike. So, uh, you know, I, when the Constitution convention concluded to Mrs. Powell of Philadelphia asked Ben Franklin, what have you given us, doctor, uh, a republic or a monarchy? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Uh, I think we need to keep the electoral college if we want to keep our republic. Uh, and I'd remind and to reinforce what you said, Mike, it's a republic. It is not a democracy. And thank goodness, that's just two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. <laughs> uh, a writer I know Crosby and I admire, and I think you do as well, Dave, uh, George Will put it this way. In a democracy, everyone votes for something. In a republic, voters decide who decides. There's the essential difference. Michelle, what do you think about abolishing the Electoral College? I think it's going to be hard to abolish, especially in the climate that we have now. It'd be difficult to do. But I think it speaks to, and what <coughs> candidates are speaking to, is a larger issue that voters are facing and that they feel that their vote and their voice is not being heard. That's essentially what this boils down to. Um, that, you know, although we've only had this happen in, you know, five different elections, it's been a hundred years since the last time it's happened. What has gone right in the last, you know, a hundred years before the last, you know, few elections before the popular vote was not enough to get the candidate elected? People, and I think regular voters can't understand how, if there are enough votes for a candidate to win, they still don't win. That's problematic. Well, well, the problem, I think, Crosby, is if you did it by just popular vote, wouldn't the major, larger states decide you know, every that, presidential that, that, That's election? the argument, as Jason said. Um, I, you know, we're having this discussion uh, for one reason, because Hillary Clinton didn't go to Wisconsin. I think that's not a good reason to have a, a constitutional uh, discussion. I also would point out in those five elections that you mentioned, the, 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 uh, the, the person with the most votes, the plurality of votes, actually didn't get a majority. In none of those five elections, I'd have to explain this at, Bill a, at Clinton, a bar for example. in 1876 uh, why that's true, but uh, uh, it, it didn't get a majority. So a majority of people actually voted against the person with the plurality. So you can ar make an argument for the Electoral College that way. At least the discussion about the Electoral College keeps our minds off the court packing plan. Uh, that is the other uh, uh, change of constitutional norms that's on the table right now. Uh, and lowering the voting age in presidential elections to 16. Uh, would that be a great idea? I, uh, <laughs> I think that, you it's know, we need extreme, to, right? it's a little extreme, but in, in essence, we need to make the access to voting and the, the ability for people to vote as easy as possible, right? That's just part of like what being in a democracy is about, right? People need to have access to the vote and be able to vote. Well, and to this know that doesn't vote keep people from voting. It, it, it depends on how the votes are counted. It doesn't keep people from voting. But again, if I cast a ballot and you win, you know, you get the most numerical votes, I expect that to be my candidate. I don't understand how don't, a body. Yeah, just, just don't give winner take all. Like Florida, give your electoral votes, split them up between who who gets what percentage, and then it's all taken care of. Well, of course, they can actually choose. The Electoral College members can choose who to vote for. Right. Uh, one of the reasons we have an Electoral College is so that we can have a Constitution, because it was like the makeup of the Congress, something that uh, you had to have 
fairness to the smaller states or there would not have been a constitution. Yeah, the smaller states need to matter. No they need to matter in this whole debate. Too. Hence, oh, uh, we're going to head now to the soapbox for Roast and Toast, where the Ruckets have 30 <laughs> seconds each to agitate, appreciate, or obviate. And we start with Dave. A toast to Kansas Representative Christy Williams. She's behind two really important pieces of legislation this year. House Bill 2006 creates a database of all the state's taxpayer-funded giveaways and would require them to be periodically audited so we can learn whether they're really delivering all, on all those uh, ribbon-cutting promises. She also developed legislation that requires school districts to develop their budgets from the classroom up and certify that funding is, is set aside so that kids are really getting the education they deserve. We need more accountability in government, and Representative Williams is a leading voice in that area. All right, Michelle. I want to give a toast to uh, Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet. This week, they hosted a Facebook Live series called Conversations with the Can <laughs> Candidates, where they invited all the mayoral candidates to come in and sit down for a 30-minute one-on-one interview to talk about their platforms and issues. That is a very innovative way to bring the voices and platforms of the candidates to the people, and you can watch from your uh, cell phone or living room. So it's a great way to be informed uh, without having to uh, get out of the house. So kudos to Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet. And the candidates that participated. Jason. On that note, I want to also toast a mayoral forum that KCBT hosted. It was awesome. Uh, Nick Haynes uh, hosted it. It was fast-paced, high energy. It actually brought out some energy out of the candidates, some bold, some boldness out of them, and it was exciting, entertaining. It's on YouTube now if you haven't seen it. Uh, I didn't know Crosby was involved until today. That makes me like it even more. And the only thing that was missing was Mike Shannon with pre- and post-game. <laughs> With each of the candidates. So that would have been the topping on the cake, icing on the cake we would have gotten, Mike. All right, uh, Crosby. So I'd like to toast the two candidates who, in that forum at the Kansas City Public Library for KCPT, uh, pointed out that we have a regressive, high-tax uh, system, very inequitable, uh, incredibly unfair corporate tax incentives. Alicia Kennedy, uh, who was endorsed by the Star this week, and especially Quentin Lucas, who was the only one who was specific uh, about setting standards in this city. And finally, here's a toast to veteran journalist Ted Koppel, who told the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace that President Trump is not mistaken when it comes to his many complaints about modern journalism. Koppel cited so-called resistance to Trump by major newspapers, notably the New York Times and Washington Post. Koppel put it this way, we are not the reservoir of objectivity that I think we once were. Hard not to agree with veteran journalist Ted Koppel. And by the way, his comments came before the Mueller report was made public. And that is Ruckus for this week. We're back next Thursday at 7. Now for the Ruckus and the crew, I'm Mike Shannon saying thanks for watching and good night.